Hello, welcome to another edition of Talking Foosball, the Bundesliga show, your source for all things German football. I'm your host, Matt Herman, and this week we are all a flutter after hearing rumors that a very special guest might be joining our league next season. With me this week are Marie Schulte-Balkum and Reese Tigwell. I want to ask you both this question because it's, it's on the mind of a lot of people. Is it possible that Borussia Mönchengladbach sporting director Max Eberl, that he might have found a coach even more handsome than the one who is leaving them? Marie, why don't you go first? Yes. Hell yes. I think Eberl has done a wonderful job here as far as tall, um, bearded, well-styled men go. And this is um, he's moved up pretty much from Europa League to Champions League in terms of, of looks and style <laughs> and um, sophistication. So, yeah. And I, I mean, also in terms of international um, acumen, because Xabi Alonso, I mean, you know, he has the, the language set and the connections and the prestige that he brings is going to help lift Gladbach up even further. Nice, nice. All right, we got one pro. Do we, do we have another pro or do we have a con here, Reese? I think we've got another pro. However, I think many would say that um, it's hard pushed to get a better one than, than Rosa. But um, yeah, I, I'll go yes as well. Nice, nice. I, I think it's it's probably a clean sweep. I mean, Chabi Alonso uh, being, you know, whatever, an Armani model in his past is very, very hard to top in this category. I think <laughs> there might be a special dispensation from UEFA to put Gladbach into the Champions League next year just so we can see this guy on the touchline in a suit. Anyway, we, we'll have much more on this uh, Chubby Alonso bombshell, which uh, seems to have hit the Bundesliga, although this is all on, on the rumor level so far. We will have more about uh, action down at the bottom of the table. We will have uh, a big, big flex from Bayern Munich coming right up. Let's get started with part one of Talking Foosball, the part where we talk about the best of the match day just gone. This was match day 26. And I really feel like this week, uh, we might as well start at the top. If, if, if you're a regular listener to this show, first of all, thank you. We love you. Uh, but second of all, you will know that we don't just start every show with the defending champs. Uh, Bayern, they are serial winners. They uh, play lovely football on, on many an occasion. They generate headlines. But some weeks, uh, you know, they just whip Cologne or whatever. And we don't need to talk about that at length. But this week, we have no alternative. The Recordmeister knew that they were entering this game against Valfbay Stuttgart on Saturday, needing three points after Leipzig had beaten Bielefeld on Friday night. More on that game later. They needed to maintain that four-point gap, and they got off to an absolute disaster start. They went down to 10 men after Alfonso Davies got sent off 12 minutes in. But then came, you know, all I can say it was a huge, huge flex. Three goals in the next 11 minutes, a fourth before halftime, cruising to an easy win over a team that has, has posed serious problems for a lot of other uh, big teams, especially away from home. I thought this was just massively impressive. Uh, do you agree, Marie? Yeah, for sure. And it just has a lot to do, I think, also with Robert Lewandowski and his 
drive and hunger for goals. And I mean, he's the type of player who, if Bayern is up 5-0 in the 85th minute and he hasn't scored, he'll be pissed. And, you know, I think that's something you can't teach. That's just something some players have. And he scored three in this game and he's now scored 35 in this Bundesliga season. And we're on match day 26. He needs six more goals and he has eight more games to score them and break Gerd Müller's record. And the 40 goal season record that Gerd Müller set up in the 70s for Bayern Munich was a record that no one really seriously ever expected to be broken. And here we are. And I think every year people talk about who could succeed Robert Lewandowski and if he's getting old in age, but he's never injured. He has the same kind of body as Cristiano Ronaldo that just doesn't seem to age. And uh, yeah, just a sensational professional. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Brees... I don't want to beat a dead horse because Marie did really lay out a lot of great stuff about Robert Lewandowski, but I don't want to stop talking about him. I want to keep going. <laughs> I am becoming increasingly fascinated with this guy, not only with the fact that um, I am now 99.999% certain that he is going to break that record by Gerd Miller and probably break it by quite a distance. But the fact that, you know, other than us Bundesliga obsessives, he still goes under the radar a little bit. He still does not get even a fraction of the love of a lot of other big name players in, in world football. I'm not just talking about, you know, Ronaldo and Messi, who, of course, their era is slowly coming to an end. But even the next generation, it seems like there's a lot of people who just want to pass him by. Do you think he's still a little underrated? I definitely think there's a case for that outside of Germany, yes. I think Warini with Lewandowski is... He's just getting better with age. He really is faultless. Uh, he scores all types of goals. And thanks to his brace in this game, this game was already over inside 23 minutes. But when Alfonso Davies got sent off after 12, I think many would have thought we had a game on our hands here. But such is the quality of this guy that, yeah, Bayern just wrapped this one up pretty easily. Yeah, I can't really put a lot of fault into this performance from Bayern. I mean, when, <laughs> when you go 4-0 up in the first half... You know, sometimes you just kind of get to take the second half off. Looking past what happened on the pitch this weekend, Marie, there were a few discordant notes being hit off of it. What exactly is going on behind the scenes between the coach, Hansi Flick, and the uh, sporting director, Hassan Salihamidzic? Sure, yeah. So it was um, Sport1, the uh, internet portal that first reported this about two weeks ago, that there are tensions between Hansi Flick and Hassan Salihamidzic, the sporting director. And this is interesting for many reasons because they're both kind of the young guard of leadership at the club and they're both very highly rated by the old guard and very established at this point. Hassan Salihamidzic in many ways is kind of Oli Hoeneß's guy. It was Oli Hoeneß that at a preseason tour, I believe in 2016, in a taxi in China, convinced Hassan Salihamidzic that he was experienced and able enough to grow into this role and become sporting director. Um, at the time, that call was met, uh, met by a lot of skepticism because Bayern had had guys like Matthias Sammer in a similar position before who were much more qualified, at least in terms of experience and education, to do that. But to his credit, Salihamidzic, since the summer of 2017, has grown into the role He's been right on many calls. Uh, he had to really push for the signature of um, Alfonso Davis. That was 
met by um, a lot of criticism and skepticism uh, within the club, but also within the German footballing landscape and what a signing Davis has been. He's actually one of those players who I think if you're live in the stadium, uh, when I've reported at Bayern Games live, he's even better up close because when you see how he moves and how he chases down balls, that kind of uh, dynamicism and uh, speed is not something that you always see on your television. Um, so he's a sensational signing. And then, of course, Hansi Flick came on. And in some ways, Flick is Michael Rummenigge's guy. Sorry, not Michael Rummenigge, that's the brother. Karl-Heinz Rummenigge, of course. And Hansi Flick is very highly rated, but he's only been there a year. And so now you have this, or I guess like, yeah, not even, well, is it a year? Yeah. So, he, you know, you now you have this tension between the two where it turned out that Hansi Flick was not very happy with three of Salihamidzic's signings, and those signings being Alexander Nübel, Buna Saar um, at fullback, and, of course, Mark Rocca um, for the defensive midfield position. And Salihamidzic had promised those players and their agents more time, more opportunity on the pitch, and Flick is like, well, I decide the lineup and it's based on ability and he doesn't rate them as highly. So there's a big tension there and a lot of frustrated, I mean, at least five frustrated people in that setup, three being players and then two, of course, Brazzo, which is Sally Amidjan's nickname, and uh, Hansi Flick. So, yeah, I think that pretty much sums up the tensions. Hansi Flick is said to have said Maul in an outburst of anger which is pretty much German for shut your mouth. And um, apparently they have since made up. And Hansi Flick has stated in a press conference that this is normal, that tensions can be very fruitful, but that they're respectful and have a normal working relationship. So make of that what you will. Yeah, I, I think that, you know, telling your, I guess your boss, but I guess in, in the world of football, it's not always clear between coaches and sporting directors who's who's the boss but telling your boss to shut up is kind of a big deal Reese I guess the one thing that comes to mind here is and, and this might might spill over into some more you know boardroom politics stuff is that Hansi Flick is also probably a pretty hot property for another big job within the, the the German football sphere probably after the Bayern Munich job maybe the second biggest job although there might be some arguments with that do you think that that he might, if he's having a, a rough ride or feeling like he's not being given his way at Bayern, might be tempted by uh, becoming Joachim Löw's successor? I definitely think it's a possibility. Um, he recently said to, to Sky Germany that, you know, he, they've approached each other, uh, he and, and Salah Hemizic, and they've put their differences aside. But what he tells the media and what he's actually thinking and what's going on behind the scenes could be two completely different things and I think it, it could be a, a feud that could push him out of the door eventually if things aren't sorted but I think at the moment it's looking likely that I think you could say that Stefan Kuntz uh, will be the new Germany manager at this moment. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, speaking, it's, it's funny, uh, Marie, that you, you, you had a little, um, I don't know whether it was just a simple error or a Freudian slip about Michel Rummenigge, uh, but Michel Rummenigge, who's not really in the news a lot, uh, let's just say, was in the news late last week <laughs> talking about Stefan Kuntz, uh, who of course is, is, uh, part of the DFB set up at the youth level and has been a fairly unsuccessful sporting director in the, at the club level. He came out and said, if they're considering Stefan Kuntz for the, the, the Bundes trainer job, you know, to the, the, the national team coach, 
then I don't think they uh, have their heads screwed on, which is to say, you know, Oliver Bierhoff. Uh, is, is, is that a legit uh, opinion? Do you think Stefan Kunz is just not up to it? I actually rate Stefan Kunz quite highly because he's gifted interpersonally. Um, his players um, speak very highly of him. And in many ways, I mean, especially with the millennial generation of which I am one, that kind of positive feedback and constructive criticism is much more needed than perhaps with the former generation of guys like John Terry, uh, Ibrahimovic, Thierry Henry, you know, Vieira, who perhaps um, Michael Balak, who responded more to the sternness of, say, a Jose Mourinho. So there's this new crop of coaches who you know, get on well with players like Pogba or Neymar and um, Mbappé and, you know, players who are creative but sensitive and have big egos and need to be loved. And, um, you know, James Rodriguez is one like that, of course, as well. And and Stefan Kunz, you know, he does bring those qualities. I also think in many ways you have to be very different in terms of coaching ability as a national coach versus, versus a club coach because you you know, you only work with the players, you know, at most maybe one and a half or two months a year, if it's a big tournament. And you have players coming from Chelsea, from Bayern, from Dortmund, from different clubs, um, from RB Leipzig. And you, it's basically like an all-star game. You just have to make sure the pieces fit and you're not going to, you know, teach these players how to play uh, soccer because they already can do that. So I, I, in some ways, think it is much harder to be a Bayern Munich coach than a Germany coach. And, of course, Stefan Kunz would be, in some ways, a small solution, but so was Joachim Löw, you know? He was only um, Jürgen Klinsmann's assistant. He didn't really have much senior coaching experience on the club level before that. So he's not my favorite candidate. I actually think uh, Ralf Rangnick would be very interesting, Um but I, I can see it happening, and I think Germany could do worse. All right. Interesting you mentioned Ralph Rangnick. We're going to talk about him later in the podcast and why it looks like uh, he's, he's still on the job market. Risa, one more thing I wanted to touch on about Bayern before we leave them behind is that, you know, in between our last podcast and uh, the game that they played uh, this weekend, they did find out who they will face in the Champions League in the next round. That is uh, Paris Saint-Germain. And also, if if they are to, to, to advance from that game, they will face the winner of Manchester City and Borussia Dortmund. How do you like their path to, you know, another European Cup? I think that they're obviously coming into the game off the back of blowing Lazio away, really. Yeah, it's a Lazio side that are struggling domestically in Serie A. But I think in PSG, they've got a really good chance of progressing to the semi-finals. You could say that they've got a slight disadvantage there at home first. So, you know, PSG can take them back to the Parc des Princes for the second leg. However, PSG are a side that this season, of course, they're perennial champions in Liga, but this season they've struggled at times and they've only just gone back to the top of Liga at the weekend after they beat Lyon. But in terms of what comes after that, it's likely to be Man City. And I think Man City will be many people's favourites for the tournament this year. So I think Bayern have lucked out in, in that situation. Yeah, a real a real title before the title situation if that semi final comes about, I reckon. 
Let's talk just for a moment about the real chasers of Bayern in this uh, Bundesliga season. That's RB Leipzig. They got a win this weekend. It was a 1-0 win over uh, Armenia Bielefeld. And, and I guess by that token, they they really succeeded where, you know, Leverkusen and, and a number of other teams have failed in recent weeks, which is to say just, you know, out-battling Bielefeld for all three points. It was a interesting turn of events. You know, uh, Marcel Zabitzer, who is really known for, uh, you know, free kicks and long distance rocket shots, scored basically a tap in, uh, to, to get the goal in this game. Any thoughts from, from you, I guess, first, Marie, about how Leipzig are, are looking heading into their very, very big game at home to Bayern Munich on match day 27? Yeah. You know, I think. In some ways, Timo Werner's departure has made Leipzig more unpredictable, where now they have goals coming from such a big variety of players and they have so many goal threats and also in a really unusual way from different positions on the field. It's, it's almost like a basketball team where you have like five players who are all threats in different ways and combine in different ways. and. You know, Nagelsmann has such a luxury of playing around tactically with these players too, throwing in different guys. I mean, in this game, he basically started Forsberg as a striker and rested Alexander Serlot. He, you know, you can play with two up top, with Powelson. You can use Kluivert on the wings. Uh, Huang is, is um, developing as well. And Nkunku has been sensational all season and they have such strength in the middle of the pitch in central midfield with Kampel, Forsberg, Sabitzer, Tyler Adams and Haidara. Dani Olmo is developing very quickly too. So it's, it's just a very attractive squad and perhaps in terms of quality in, you know, at the very top um, and with the best players, it's not yet at Dortmund and Bayern's level, but I think in terms of, of the breadth of quality, you know, they're very much better than Dortmund and perhaps even better than Bayern Munich in terms of just how many quality players of international standard they now have. I do think they'll be looking to make a, a star signing for center forward in the summer. And of course, they need to replace um, Dayo Upamecano. But uh, this is a very attractive squad that's only going to get better because these players are now in their mid-20s. Some are still in their early 20s. And uh, they're only going to grow from here, I think, especially if Nagelsmann stays. Yep, yep, I agree. I think that's, um, you know... Nagelsmann's future is is sort of the the biggest underlying story for them because you know he's such an ambitious coach. He's spoken on on a number of occasions, you know, <laughs> tell him let us know how ambitious he is. So it's always whenever they don't quite reach their uh, their highest goals, that there's always a little bit of writing on the wall that maybe he'll be tempted by the likes of you know Chelsea, Man United, Real Madrid, whomever. Speaking of Dayo Upamecano, it looks as though they have at least made one signing at that position. Uh, a player from Racing Strasbourg, Mohamed Simakan, is on his way in in the summer. Reese, why don't you give me your take on looking at the game specifically between Leipzig and Bayern? You know, I spoke with with Nick on the podcast last week and and sort of expressed to him that I thought Leipzig were looking good coming into that game. And part of the reason why I, I thought that was that I thought that Stuttgart was going to give Bayern a harder time than they did. I thought that they might actually get a point out of that game. Uh, that, of course, 
didn't happen. Um, what's your outlook on on Leipzig versus Bayern on match day twenty seven? Yeah, well, of course, it's, we're going we're going to find out really if we really do have a title race on our hands, and it's a real chance for Leipzig to prove who they really are and you know what they're really made of, and I suppose whether they're capable of winning the Bundesliga. But I think if if they lose this game, which could easily happen, is is Bayern at the end of the day. Um, then it's, it's all over as, as far as I'm concerned. But I think even if they do beat Bayern, there's no guarantees that they're still going to go on and win the Bundesliga um, because I still think they're going to drop other points along the way. Um, but it will sure make things very exciting. But I, I can't see past Bayern, to be honest. They always seem to find a way. They sure do, don't they? Year after year after year after year. I'm not going to go up to eight. That would be silly. Okay, let's switch gears. Let's go to the hottest news off the block. It's the one that we opened the show with in our uh, exploration of, you know, just how high on the handsome Richter scale Borussia Mönchengladbach can go. But there was a game that uh, the Foles were participating in. We can mention it at least uh, before we get on to talking about their more long-term future. Gladbach were 3-0 winners at Schalke. You know, I thought this was certainly a big game for them considering the the, the bad uh, set of results that they were coming off of. This, you know, this one, basically uh, Schalke versus Gladbach was was probably even more so than, than Hertha Leverkusen. The matchup of the most dysfunctional uh, teams in terms of form uh, heading into the weekend. What did you guys make of this win? I guess... Maybe we can go to you first, uh, Marie. Uh, well, truthfully, we could go either way. Both of y'all are, are you know, have some, some Schalke sympathies. <laughs> Did either of you expect a little bit more from them, considering the sort of wounded bird quality of, of Gladbach going into this game? I can put you in. I, this is exactly the game I expected. I mean, I think there was a, a tweet by Peppo, who's a kind of, Schalke legend in Gelsenkirchen. He was the first guy to guy or girl to start a Schalke podcast a few years ago and has had many famous guests. Um, kind of wears his heart on his sleeve, a bit of an emotional dude. And before the game, he just tweeted, Will Schalke lose 0 3 or 0 4 or 05? And then it was like 0 3 because I'm an optimist, um, is what how, how he responded. And um, I think that sums it up pretty well. I think. I mean, if you're a club in crisis right now, which is very much the case for Gladbach, you can't get luckier than playing Schalke because I just think at this stage they enter games expecting to lose and that's what they end up doing. And um, we're now at a point where the players, I think, are all kind of in fear for their personal futures, uh, much more so than the club's future, um, because this is an economic crisis, this is a pandemic, they are all very well paid at Schalke um, on much better contracts than their performance um, deserves. And not just in this season, but in previous years. Um, and they are going to have to be worried about um, if they're going to be playing at a club that big in the future and receiving a monthly paycheck of that size. So I think this is a very scattered team that is basically a wounded animal, but not in the dangerous wounded animal sense but more maybe like a wounded sheep uh, in a meadow (laughs) 
So yeah, Gladbach, Gladbach was lucky to, to get them and um, Gladbach did well. You know, they did their job. Yeah. Well, we've got storylines to break into uh, on on both of these teams' behalf, but I do want to, I guess, probably start with Gladbach. I mean, they they got over the trouble that they were having since the announcement of the, the departure of their coach, Marco Rosa, one that I think had been weighing on them, not necessarily uh, because the, the relationship between the players and the coach was bad. By all reports, it hasn't been bad. In fact, Christoph Kama this weekend really complained pretty bitterly about that storyline being overplayed, saying that, you know, it's been everywhere so much that even, even my mother was asking me <laughs> if this was a problem between, you know, us and, and the coach. And he's like, no, 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 you know, <laughs> really no. But, you know, now that we have something of a clearer idea of, 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 a, of a possibility of a new coach for Borussia Mönchengladbach, which is to say Xabi Alonso, this really puts a new cast on the future of Borussia Mönchengladbach. I think it is, this is a huge coaching get for the Bundesliga if it happens, but it's not one without risk. I mean, Xabi Alonso, legendary player for three <laughs> You know, pretty legendary clubs, uh, as well as others, somewhat less legendary. But he's basically not experienced at all as a top-level first-team coach. Reese, we've talked about how how we like the looks of him, the cut of his jib. But uh, is, is this the right move for a club in the position of of Gladbach? You reckon? I certainly think it's an interesting one. Um, but as as you mentioned, it's certainly a big step up from Alonso, who was at Real Sociedad B, um, who compete in the Segunda División B as well, which is the third tier of, of Spanish football. Um, they currently sit top of their regional tier. But at the end of the day, this is the Spanish third tier. Um, and it's a massive gamble for, for Gladbach. Um, but of course, Xabi Alonso knows both the language and the culture of Germany well from his time at Bayern. And Max Abel has spoken about it being important that the coach can speak German. Um, but at least for now, it, it will end that period of uncertainty of what comes after Rosa. And yeah, hopefully it does come off. Um, so I think it will be a good fit for the Bundesliga. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I want to put this as, in as snappy terms as I can. And I'm going to take this uh, from a listener question from... Someone also with a very snappy uh, Twitter handle, Van Dykes to watch out for. <laughs> Marie, are you Chabi Alonso? Yes, or Chabi Alonso? No. I'm Chabi Alonso. Yes, because stranger things have happened, and he he has put in the work. You know, he has earned a UEFA coaching license. He as a professional coach. Um, he was actually interestingly enough in the same class as Chabi. And as Raul, in, I think they all graduated in 2019 from the La Liga um, program or the Spanish Federation program. Um, and that's kind of the Spanish equivalent of what the DFB, the German Federation, does. The license that was earned by Julian Nagelsmann and Domenico Tedesco in the same year. And, you know, that program that a lot of coaches in Germany go through. So he's he's got the credentials and he... We always knew this about him. You know, we always knew that he was an intelligent player. Um, he was the type of player who would talk to coaches when he was an active player. You could sense also his his reading of the game on the pitch, you know, like from that position of playing as a kind of ball playing number six. In some ways, very different, but also similar to how Thiago plays now. I say different because I think on the ball, they, they're different, but they both, they're both very intelligent and skillful players. 
And they are both always looking over their shoulder. They are. They're always anticipating and they see two or three passes ahead of other players, uh, what's happening on the pitch. And they're both not the kind of like bloodied up eye fighter, loud guy that a lot of German fans, especially of an older generation, always want. You know, the Effenberg or... Uh, Van Bommel or Bastian Schweinsteiger type, um, but they've both never apologized for not being that figure. You know, they lead in different ways. And uh, sorry, I'm going off on a tangent because Thiago is one of my favorite players um, in active football today. But Xavi Alonso, you know, we just have to remember the passing records that he was setting when he was at Bayern and he was in his early 30s and everyone was like, what are they doing with this guy? You know, he came on as kind of like Tony Kroos' successor and everyone was a bit skeptical and he just bossed straight away and he has he has that kind of presence that impresses players and Gladbach has some divas you know and some very talented players and uh, in their squad and I think they're all gonna kind of fall silent when Xavi Alonso if he comes um you know when he arrives that he he's gonna warrant a lot of respect Yep. We know his coaching credentials, but we don't know his coaching philosophy or, or whether he'll be any good in the Bundesliga. But I think that this move has a ton of potential. If for no other reason, then what better way could there be to counteract the effect of, of not qualifying for Europe, which it looks like they're not going to do, than to hire a coach who is going to immediately be one of the biggest stars in the league? It's hard to attract players if you're not playing in Europe. But it's probably pretty easy to attract players if your coach is Javi Alonso. <laughs> Let's briefly talk about, you know, this is a really troubling. I, I don't want to relegate it to the, to, the, to the position of a side issue, although it is a tangent. Uh, but it is something that I think is, is, you know, it doesn't cast Borussia Mönchengladbach in a very nice light. It's about... One of their coaches, at, at, not at the top level, but on, on the, the Zweite Mannschaft, uh, the, you know, the reserve team coach, Heiko Vogel. Marie, do you want to sort of give an explanation of, of, of what, what happened here? Yeah, sure, I can do that. Um, I'll give it a, a, a try. So the under-23 team at Gladbach, um, who I believe play in the fourth tier of German football, um, in one of their matches, Heiko Vogel, the head coach and a former professional uh, football player, he got emotional on the sidelines with one of the referees who, in this case, happened to be a um, female referee. I think she was the fourth official. And in an outburst, uh, to give him the benefit of the doubt, in an emotional outburst that we see with male coaches and male referees all the time as well, he kind of snapped. Uh, but what he said was, in my opinion, more than an outburst. I mean, the German Federation called this unsportsmanlike conduct. I think if we're being accurate, you could call this discrimination, which people would have said if it were any other, I'm going to say, quote unquote, minority, because in football, it is a minority. And that is women, at least in the men's game, they're still a minority because he basically said, um, women don't belong on the pitch. Uh, this isn't for you. Um, I don't know. I, I don't think he said anything like kitchen or house, but there, there was some element of that in this. I forget the exact quote, uh, but it was overheard by multiple people. And to defend Gladbach a little bit, it was actually, um, according to articles I've read, the German Federation, so the DFB, that apparently instituted or suggested this rule that 
to redeem himself, he should coach Gladbach, Gladbach's women's side, uh, which hasn't been around very long and is therefore of a you know lower level than, say, a Bayern Munich's team or a Wolfsburg's women's team. And uh, so this was suggested that he would coach them, I think, for five sessions. And yeah, I mean, like, let's read between the lines. You know, we're hearing that this is a demotion, that it's a punishment to move from the men's B team to the women's A team. And it's just whoever thought of this, there's a there's an element of misogyny in this that I really don't like because a coach is a calling, you know, to, to be a coach at any level, whether it's coaching your six-year-old son's team in New Jersey uh, or Tennessee or your daughter's team in uh, Queens, New York, you know, it's like, it's something people like to do and a lot of people do it for free. And a lot of people, whether in the women's game or the men's game or youth football, you know, they, they love this. This is their dream job. And so for this to be handled the way it was, as if it's, I don't know, community service or picking up trash from the side of the street, I I just really don't like that sentiment. And it was actually, you know, a lot of people responded to this, including the Werder Bremen's women's team and Werder Bremen as a club in general. They said um, that this is not how, you know, how they perceive women's football. And also Alexandra Popp, um, the very famous uh, Wolfsburg striker and Germany um, player with the German women's national team. She also um, released a statement on social media. Uh, yeah, so that's kind of my summary of what happened there. Yeah, yeah, and it's 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 a pretty a pretty lame reminder that even people pretty close to the top of of German football, who you would think at the very least would have the sense not to express sentiments like Vogel did in in that game, you know, it's really just not even very far beneath the surface that that these these sort of you know completely outmoded attitudes are still alive and well. I do want to talk about Schalke. I don't know if we can do it in <laughs> a reasonably expeditious way because I do want to go to a break in a moment. I guess where I want to start with that is is simply where Schalke go from here. I mean, Nick and I talked last week on the podcast about the strong possibility, it seemed a week ago, that uh, Ralph Rangnick would be rejoining the club, not as a coach, but as a sporting director and sort of overseeing a long-term project of bringing the club back to, to where they think it should be after what seems now to be an inevitable uh, period in the, 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 the Bundesliga 2. That's looking less and less likely now. Where do they go from here? What, do, what are they looking for in uh, a sort of sports supremo? Yeah, so there's been reports in the media this week that um, Rangnick has officially told the club, you know, no thanks, because one of his reasons was a disappointment over the club's transfer policy. And it's really peculiar, actually, because in the same week that they're trying to bring Rangnick in, the man who would largely be responsible for all the transfer dealings at the club, they go and sign Danny Latzer. Um, and of course, no disrespect to, to Danny Latzer, uh, the Mainz player at the moment. Um, but it's more, it says an awful lot about this great club, really. And then the question is, where do they go from here? Because they're trying to bring in Rangnick to, to sort the transfer dealings out. And then they go and do things like that behind his back. A lot of people talk about um, Schalke doing Schalke things. And this is just another example of a, a peculiar situation at the club. 
Yeah, Marie, are there are there candidates that sort of would fit the bill of of being a long term architect in the mold of Rangnick that um, that Chapo could go after? I mean, whatever you think about uh, Danny Latza, he's he's a fine sort of mites level slash maybe. He could even be a standout Bundesliga two player, but he's he's not gonna you know set all that many uh, hearts aflutter. Yeah, I mean, I, to me, the Latza signing makes sense because he's thirty one. He's from the Schalke academy. The fans were happy. He knows the environment. His family lives there, and typically at that age, players do sometimes make these sentimental decisions um, that perhaps on a sporting level don't make a lot of sense, but are good for the family or good for the wallet or whatever. And uh, yeah, I mean, if anything, you you do need some players like that, scruffy, unglamorous players, dirty players. And I do, I can see Latza in the second Bundesliga. And I don't think that's the reason Rangnick turned him down. I mean, let's be honest, um, Rangnick used Schalke just as much as Schalke perhaps used Rangnick here. And I think, yeah, you asked about other candidates. I wouldn't say in the mold of Rangnick, because that's really a very high bar. Um, but there are other candidates who... I think would be flattered with this, you know, with this challenge. And one is Erik Staffelshaus, who was previously at Schalke and is now in Russia, in Mos- working in Moscow, is doing good work there, is well connected in the business. I think he would very much like to do this uh, task. There's Peter Knebel, who's already in the club, who's done a lot to do with internationalization and the Talent Academy and is kind of doing this job right now, you know, in an inter- on an interim basis. Then there is uh, Ruben Schröder, who did a good job at Mainz, is very well connected in terms of signing young players, especially in French football. And uh, I've encountered I've encountered him on some occasions in the mixed zone and on a, in press conferences. And he is well spoken. And you know, I think at least from a communications perspective, would be a, definitely an upgrade from Jochen Schneider. And uh, Jonas Bolt, who I think, uh, honestly, Schalke would be able to snatch up from Hamburg and who almost came to Schalke in 2019 um, to work as a sporting director under Christian Heidel. But then Heidel said that he basically didn't want someone under him. Um, so, so there are these candidates out there. There's also Oliver Runert, who used to head up Schalke's academy uh, before moving to Union Berlin and doing a very good job there in the past two years. And these, all of these candidates, there's a German saying, which is kleinere Brötchen backen, you know, baking smaller bread buns. Very, very German saying, you know, perhaps not the croissant or the sourdough or the ciabatta, but maybe the humble little bread bun. Yeah. So this is, I mean, Rangnick being perhaps the almond raspberry croissant. And now we're maybe dealing with a stale piece of bread um, that has potential, you know, <laughs> maybe like a, maybe like a um, bagel after two days. You know, you can fix that with a, some good cream cheese and 20 seconds in the microwave. Um, so that's kind of what these candidates resemble in my mind. Yeah. Yeah. If, if you just, you know, put a little water on your hand and spread <laughs> it across the surface of the bread, put it in the toaster, you know, sometimes it comes comes right back to life. Yes, yes. That uh, that, that group of, of candidates, you know, compared to Ralph Rangnick sounds a bit like the day old bin, but there's a lot of promise there. I think part of Schalke's difficulties over the last many years has been you know, thinking too big, spending too big, a lot of things too big. So um, maybe, maybe, maybe scaling things back is is not a bad thing. All right, let's take a little break, and we'll come back with more of Match Day Twenty Six.
part two of Talking Foosball, the part where we talk about the rest of the match day just gone. This was match day 26, of course. We ended the last part with some chat about Schalke and Borussia Mönchengladbach. Those, you know, are, are one of, of several matchups that, that took place between relegation battlers and, uh, you know, one time, sometime, whatever, European aspirants. There was a lot of those uh, that this weekend. The one I want to jump to next is uh, Cologne and Borussia Dortmund. This was a 2-2 draw. And I thought the, the set of circumstances after the game was a little bit funny. You know, Cologne, they, they conceded in the 90th minute and thus saw a three-point haul slip away at the the behest of Erling Haaland, who else? And they seem actually more or less cool with the results, other than a few grumblings from, from Marcus Gisdol. Dortmund, you know, they, despite getting that really heroic, you know, last-minute equalizer, saw the guy who scored it, Erling Haaland, stomping off the pitch, basically, at, at full time. He, he took off his jersey, threw it to uh, Jorge Moray, who I, I guess had been asking him after it uh, during the game, and he was cursing a blue streak going into the tunnel. So really, this was a pretty bitter disappointment for Dortmund. Reese, I guess I want to start with you. Where does this leave Dortmund going into the final eight games of the season? They still do have a lot of matches against teams ahead of them. So, you know, they, they, they can still make up some ground, but they are really digging themselves a hell of a hole. Absolutely. And, and if they didn't have Holland, they would have no doubt lost this game. I think it's going to be a big struggle now for them to get back in the Champions League. And if they don't, then financially it's going to be very damaging for them and they're simply going to have to sell players to try and recover those lost funds. Of course, the simplest thing to do would be just to go and win the Champions League this season, but with Man City standing in their way and then a potential date with either Bayern or, or PSG, they'd somehow win that. Um, I'm not very hopeful. But yeah, of course, they, they go to Frankfurt next, which is going to be a make or break, I think. Yeah, yeah. well, I mean... You, maybe we can trust, uh, you know, Pep Guardiola to come up with some wacky tactical thing. You know, play, play four holding midfielders just to be safe. <laughs> you know, looking ahead, they do have Frankfurt, they do have Wolfsburg coming up, but I still think that the chances of of getting into the Champions League places are not great. Marie, how many eggs are they putting in the, uh, you know, winning the DFB Pokal basket or or some kind of miracle in the remainder of their uh, league season? I don't, I don't, I don't see it. I think the eggs are squarely in the miracle basket. To be honest, um, I do think there's a certain naivety where these players know how good they are, and perhaps it's the arrogance of youth, but they believe that. They will be teams like Cologne without real team cohesiveness. And I think that is something that frustrated Haaland as well. You know, sometimes this defensive lethargy, the lack of quality, especially on the, in my opinion, on the defensive wings. I, I think Dortmund is very, very poor. And that that is a, you know, that is something that Michael Zorc, um has to has to deal with because you can't let someone like Ashraf Hakimi go. They had the chance to sign him for a very fair amount. To me, it was a big surprise that Real Madrid didn't want him back. Uh, but he went to Inter Milan, which in my opinion is of a lower level in European football, at least for the time being. Not far from Dortmund, but still a lower tier. And he's doing very well there. And I think Jaden Sancho in the first half of the season 
really underperformed mainly because Hakimi wasn't there behind him. And instead you have Meunier, who is 28 years old, looks a bit like someone who isn't really a footballer, you know? I mean, I know that sounds harsh, but he's like, you know, if you're picking your team on the on the Schulhof, you know, on the kids' playground at school when you're little, he's probably the kid you pick last because he doesn't have very good ball control. He's not very fast. He makes defensive errors. And they're paying him a lot of money for a four-year contract. They paid him 10 million as a signing fee. All in all, this was a 50 million euro deal. And it's just looking very bad for them. Nico Schulz was a very expensive signing who hasn't really performed on a high level. And I think, you know, on the fullback positions, when especially when Rafael Guerrero, who's so important for Dortmund, when he's out, as he was in this game, there isn't enough coming there. It makes them vulnerable in the back. In this case, Ismail Jacobs was, was the guy that exploited that for Cologne. And it makes them less of a force up front. So I think it is in some ways a kind of laziness of knowing how much attacking quality they have that there are these holes in defense that make them vulnerable to teams like Cologne. Yeah. I want to pick up on one thing that you said a moment ago, Reese, when you talked about, you know, missing the Champions League, maybe forcing them to, to, uh, sell players. When you juxtapose that idea with some of these images that, um, you know, all of us have, has, have sort of brought up of, Erling Holland being a bit frustrated with the way things are going at Dortmund and knowing that, you know, <laughs> he's only the hottest property in world football at the moment. Does that spell an exit for, for Holland sooner than we thought? Yeah, I, I think, <clears throat> I definitely think that could be on the cards. I think Holland, if he doesn't go this summer, then I definitely think he'll be gone next summer. But I think a lot of it will depend on the, as we talked about the Champions League. As well, next summer, a release clause will come into his contract, um, which will make it easier for clubs to sign him. Quite where he ends up is quite difficult to say at the moment. I think the favourites at the moment look to be Man City. Of course, he was born in England. His dad played for Man City. But as well, another interesting one that some people have said is that Lewandowski is not going to last forever. And in two years' time, Lewandowski will be 34. And Bayern are going to need a replacement. And... They've stolen from Dortmund before, and they'll continue to do it in the future. And so that's another potential option, of course, as well, PSG, to go alongside that. Yeah, I think I think he can take his pick of whatever club he wants to play for, because I think he can write his own check at this stage. Let's talk a little bit about some other games that had uh, impact, not only with, with European candidates, but with clubs toward the bottom of the table. Cologne, you know, getting that, that one point against Dortmund on Saturday, thought they were, you know, doing themselves a big solid. And, you know, in the grand scheme of things, that might be true. But Sunday did not go well for them. We saw two wins from two teams who uh, were, were also in that pack of, of clubs on either 21 or 22 points entering the weekend. By that, I mean Mites and Hertha. They both notched wins on Sunday. Mites you know, they've, they've kind of been on a roll lately since putting both Svensson in charge. Um, they started off as fast as fast can be the fastest Bundesliga goal ever, everybody. 26 seconds into the game, Robert Glatzel struck first for them. Chris Richards, you gotta, you gotta protect that ball. 
You know, but they were really a, a quick strike outfit all day, as they have been under Svensson, who's really concentrated on countering. They only had about one third of the ball, but they had twice as many shots as Hoffenheim. Uh, they're now out of the relegation zone for the first time since November. And Hertha, too. Their win was pretty damn meaningful. They are now past Cologne and Mainz. They're in 14th on the table. This is their first win over a top six side all season. They defeated Bayer Leverkusen, who of course were coming into the game on the back of some pretty poor results themselves. But um, Hertha were the ones uh, who won out on the day. That's their first clean sheet in two months, first clean sheet since, since Dardai took over. Any thoughts from you first, Marie, about the surging Mainz, I guess we can call them surging at this point, considering how bad off they were uh, a little while ago, or the the prospects of uh, Hertha of getting out of this mess. We did have some uh, some questions about who who we think are, are going to survive down at the bottom of the table. Yeah, I mean, I I think Hertha's done very well. They've recovered well. I think they also had the benefit that perhaps uh, unlike. In many months of the not-so-distant future, they've been a bit left alone by the media. You know, they, they can develop in a bit more peace. And I think that benefits the young players that they have, a mix of talented young players um, signed from other teams and, of course, some of their own academy graduates. I'm really interested in how Niklas Stark and um, Maxi Mittelstedt are developing, for example, so, you know, they, they've had that to, to benefit and help them a little bit. Also, perhaps one of the teams where it's a little better that there are no fans because they're not really missing much, but this way they have a lot of peace. And with Mainz, I mean, yeah, thank you for raising Mainz because I think what is happening there is quite stunning. You know, at the beginning of January, they had seven points. They were level with Schalke. And now I think they're on 23 points. So that is really, really spectacular, um, if we're honest. You know, this is, I think if the season were starting now, there would probably be six or seven from the table. And um, it's just, it's a, it's a mix of things. You know, it's, it's bringing back uh, people in charge who know the club, Martin Schmidt and Christian Heidel, um, a coach who seems to be working out. They they do have a talented squad. Uh, they have good attacking options in the front, I would say. Defensively, I, I think they're a little weaker. But uh, up front, they have uh, Quaison. Burkhardt is developing very nicely from their own academy. Um, they have Boetius, Onizivo. You know, they have a probably, I mean, even if we're comparing them to other teams down there, they have a better squad in terms of attacking talent than Schalke. Uh, with the exception perhaps of like Benito uh, Raman and Amina Reed. Um So yeah, I mean, kudos to them. I think every season at the beginning of the season, people look at Mainz and are like, this is the year they're going down and they never do. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I, I was, I was so tempted to, to write them off when they were down far in the dumps, but um, whatever they've done, I, 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 I I guess the the move that I would pin it on the most is Svensson because the the, the difference in results compared to the, his predecessors, plural, uh, this season is is pretty stunning. But um, this looks like a completely different team. 
Before we push off these, um, Reese, I wanted to get your opinion about uh, Leverkusen. Leverkusen, of course, are, are in, in some pretty seriously bad form. They've gone down from, you know, second place uh, in the winter break down now to, I, I believe, sixth. And uh, it, it could it could be a, a, an even further tumble in the coming weeks if things don't turn around. Um, Peter Bosch is apparently on some pretty thin ice right now. We were all singing his praises early in the season when Leverkusen were not only winning games, but keeping a lot of clean sheets and had the best defensive record in the league for a while. People are not singing his praises anymore, are they? No, they're absolutely <laughs> not. And I, th- I think Bosch's style of football demands so much. The players look so tired at the weekend. And for them, I think the international break can't come soon enough, perhaps more than anyone, with the exception of maybe Bayern. Um, of course, yeah, as you mentioned, mid-December, uh, they were sitting pretty at the top of the Bundesliga, but then it's all gone so horribly wrong. I, I still think that Bosch is, is the right man for the job, but I think you do wonder in in a world without COVID, um, would he still be in this job? I'm not so sure he would, but I just don't think they can afford to take the financial punt to, to get rid of him. Um, I think the Champions League is gone for them now. The gap's already seven points. Um, yeah, it's not looking great, to be honest. Yep, it's a fine time to be on on the lookout for a new coach, I guess. You mentioned the Champions League. It's seven points away from Leverkusen. And I I think really part of the reason uh, why things have sort of passed them by is the good form of of a couple of teams who are sort of tightening their grip on the Champions League. You know, Bayern and Leipzig are kind of playing in a league of their own at the moment. But there is another league sort of in between that league and the rest of, of the you know European aspirants, which is to say Wolfsburg and Frankfurt. Both of those teams got the job done this weekend. Uh, Wolfsburg getting uh, a somewhat tighter uh, 2-1 win over Werder Bremen in Bremen. Eintracht playing at home. Pretty much blitzed FC Union Berlin. Marie, your thoughts on uh, you know are, can we sign them up for uh, you know their 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 travel pass for next fall? Are they are they going to be in the Champions League? Both of them? God, I hope so. I mean Frankfurt, like this is what a I mean that's like fireworks, right? Like if you have a a season without fans, and then hopefully you know I mean Europe is a bit slower than the United States, but. Hopefully by the fall, at least, um, German fans will be allowed to travel again. I'm thinking maybe October or November. And then you go from no fans to having Frankfurt fans fly around Europe. (laughs) Um, Yeah, sign me up. You know, I I think they deserve it. They're a club that has been very well led, that plays attacking football, but at the same time, very much, in my opinion, kind of like working class football. You know, they really work hard on the pitch and play very physically uh, and aggressively. And um, I, I hope they make it. I really do. Yeah. Me too. Me too. And I, I, you know, I see them as a bit more vulnerable, of course, than Wolfsburg being on, you know, 47 points, a four point gap to Dortmund versus Wolfsburg. I think we can write Wolfsburg's name on, on, on the, the not trophy trophy, you know, the top four trophy, which doesn't exist. But I, I think that they uh, are pretty nailed on there. Reese, are you are you on board with me? With Wolfsburg, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, they're eight points clear of, of Dortmund now in fifth, uh, eight to play. I think for all the negativity surrounding the identity of, of that club, and also the, the lack of care for them really within Germany outside of their city, um, Glasner has built a brilliant team, um, not based on individuals 
um, which has been key for them. Apart from their course, um, they don't really have any stars, but Glasner certainly knows how to get the best out of out of these players. Um, and it's a team really built on the foundations of defence, really. Maxence Lacroix, um, the 20-year-old that they signed from Sochaux, uh, has been one of the signings of the season in the Bundesliga this season. I think keeping hold of their course is going to be difficult in the summer, particularly if he goes and has a, a really good Euros with the Netherlands. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's interesting you bring up the Netherlands, though, because he, he, he was not selected by uh, Frank de Boer in this latest Netherlands squad, which, you know, considering Frank de Boer has, uh, in my view, screwed up more jobs than he's done well at, um, maybe shouldn't surprise me. You know, maybe if, if you allow a guy to fail upward and uh, ride off of his the name that he built up as a player, maybe he'll do dumb things, like not pick Valvekhorst. Okay, one more game from the weekend, which uh, I don't really care to talk about. Uh, it's uh, Freiburg's 2-0 win over Augsburg. Hooray, Freiburg, you're, you're ever closer to uh, another European dream. But the reason why I want to bring it up is uh, we got a great listener question from George Balakrishna in Edinburgh. Yes, uh, <laughs> who's the most boring team to watch in the league? And why is it Augsburg? Marie, you, you responded to that with a very nice suggestion um, that maybe we could all nominate our uh, our top four, our, our Champions League of boring <laughs> qualifiers in the league. I'll, I'll, if you've got that in, in mind, I'll let you start. Sure. Um, I think... Augsburg uh, is Deutscher Meister. They're the number one. Yeah. Then in second place, I would have Arminia Bielefeld, just because they're very vanilla to me. They're neither offensive nor inoffensive. I don't mind having them in the Bundesliga, but I wouldn't miss them. So they're second. They haven't, you know done a spectacular. They haven't been the kind of fun underdog that we've seen in recent years, like SC Paderborn. But they're, yeah, they're just they're just kind of there. <laughs> then I would honestly include Hoffenheim, who have been, in my opinion, very poor this season. Um, they used to be a team that played very courageous football with young players and very attacking minded, kind of like in the same style of Leverkusen of we're always just going to score more goals than we concede. But this has not really been the case this year. So Hoffenheim is my number three. And my number four with a heavy heart, because they really don't deserve it because they've had such a good run, is Wolfsburg. Because you literally can't make me watch a Wolfsburg game, you know? Even Wolfsburg against Dortmund or Wolfsburg against Schalke, I would have to see if I have other options that day. Because I just do not care for them. And um, they're just, to me, like the least emotional club in German soccer. Wolfsburg is a town I'll probably never visit in my life unless I have a business deal with Volkswagen. So sorry, Volkswagen employees, if you're listening. Um, so yeah, that's, that's, that's my top four. All right. All right. Um, I, I will go next because I had a uh, prior warning about this one. I, uh, and, and Reese, I'm not sure that you did. Um, <laughs> mine would be, mine would be Augsburg. They are, you know, um, <laughs> they are Meister mit Abstand, uh, uh, I would say. And mine has a little less to do with uh, sort of culture surrounding the club, which I, I think you really took very much into account with Hoffenheim and uh, Wolfsburg. And more just for me, like sort of quality going forward. You know, apologies to all those people who like to watch, you know, battling defense uh, in their football. But 
I'm not with you. I want to see game changers uh, attacking the opposition goal. And I basically just picked out teams who don't have that. Armenia Bielefeld is also one of them. Werner Bremen, I have to put in there at least this year, which is very crazy considering their history and how many great, you know, sort of, you know, attacking game changing players they've had over the years. But at the moment, like, they don't have a lot going forward. And it's really not fun to watch them try and create chances. And, Sorry, both of y'all. Uh, Schalke Nulfier. Schalke. Yeah. Um, I love the club. I think the club is a very interesting and entertaining club. I think the culture that surrounds the club is awesome. But <laughs> you can't play soccer right now. You're terrible. <laughs> Get out of here. <laughs> Reese, you're up. Uh, what, what are we basing this on? On uh, like <laughs> lack of interest? or Well, just what's what's the most boring team in the league to watch is how, how George put it. And you're, you're allowed to interpret that as you like. <laughs> Although you have to, you have to include Augsburg in your top four because I think that's, that was that was embedded in the question. And I think that that's no problem. Right? <laughs> I'm going to say uh, Bielefeld number one because they're incredibly dull to watch. Um, <laughs> apart from Fabian, apart from Close, uh, yeah, they're they're really quite dull at times. Um, Augsburg as well, of course, number two. It pe- I feel bad saying it because it's such a great footballing city and they got great fans, but Köln. Köln without a striker is when they're playing Dudu up front. Is Dudu maybe? Yeah, yeah, to put it politely, is really not exciting to watch. Uh, and of course, I'll never put Schalke in. I think last I put Hertha because Hertha in the Olympia Stadion with fans when it's half empty is not a good sight. And Come it's, on, uh, not common to see a ground half empty in German football. Maybe if they change the stadium, then Come uh, on. Come yeah, we'll, on. we'll allow Hertha. You do that with Matthias Cunha in the side. He is worth the price of admission, no matter what ground you're in. I'm calling the podcast here. Okay, that is it for this edition of Talking Foosball, which was produced, as always, by Aiden Rantoul. Great to have you back on the podcast, Marie. Yeah, thanks for having me. And I'd like to use this opportunity, um, kind of blindfolding you with this um, and putting you uh, under pressure with the audience to pretty much campaign for a summer podcast called Talking Zweitliga Fußball um, in time for next season. So hopefully um, people can discuss Dynamo Dresden, Hamburger SV and Schalke 04 and maybe even Cologne. So yeah, that'd be great if you can make that happen. <laughs> It's it's quite possible, although you know it, it, it's a crowded space. If you you know you might want to talk to Matt Karajic and uh, Eva Latabola uh, before we go go and start another podcast in there on their turf. Sounds good. Hook me up. <laughs> dig it, dig it. Lovely to have you on on the full podcast for the first time, Reese. Thanks very much for having me. Awesome, awesome. You can uh, follow Marie on Twitter at Marie Shubo and Reese at Reese Tigwell. Don't forget to listen to Talking Foosball's historic Match Day Moments series and, and lots of other bonus material on our Patreon page, which, you know, it would be cool if you supported. Uh, it's a lot of extra content for just a, a few extra bucks or quid or euros or whatever a month. If you want to contact me, it's at Mr. Matt Herman, the podcast. Podcast at Talking Foosball. That's both on Twitter. Subscribe to our pod, review our pod, tell your friends about our pod. Bis zum nächsten Mal, y'all. Yeah.